Do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Murdocracy, first one in 2022. Uh, we are the podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Hey, Sammy. How are you this year? I am good indeed. Welcome back. You've uh, you've had some big changes since we last spoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Total, total makeover, new haircut, all that stuff. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's the biggest change in your life. <laughs> no, I, I, I got married. Um, Congratulations for the oh, family. You. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. You're just trying to bring new people in, and then I'll get my wife to. I don't know. Yeah. Just subscribe. This is. Hey, look. Yeah. I've been. I've been married twice. I can get two new listeners in if I count them. <laughs> so you know. Oh man, yeah, it's, it's all about the acquisition. No, yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. good. I um. I. I mean, we we had events uh in january which was it, it worked out somehow i mean look obviously we was just it was just after the omicron peak mm-hmm. and we had an outdoor event in la nina and somehow despite all of that things went like pretty much perfectly so feel really good about it it was nice to have a couple of weeks off but i'm very excited to be back i can't imagine like organizing weddings under normal circumstances is so stressful uh, organizing a wedding during covid and omicron and all of that i'm surprised you have any hair left on your head <laughs> me too actually kind of i um if you look if you spoke to me a week before i was i was freaking out because like so we got mm-hmm. married in late january and you know just two weeks out you know this was really the midst of like numbers were soaring uh, a few weeks before we, New South Wales, where I am, they'd had the, you know, the, there was the mask mandate, which was removed and then brought back in. And we were like, surely nothing will happen. And look, our, our wedding, um, you know, the main event was outside. It was fairly COVID safe. And we contacted all the people coming saying, look, we'd love you to do a test beforehand. It's outside. We've made changes to make it COVID safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it was just so much uncertainty because we just, I mean, we hadn't seen like numbers like that. Like we were in the 20,000s. I know people in, in, you know, Victoria was as well. Yeah. And, um, somehow it all just worked out. So we're back to it and it is going to be a massive year. I mean, look, the election coming up in less than three months. Can you believe it? Um, so that is no doubt going to be a huge thing. And, um, I mean, look, we've been doing this for a lot of last year or, or I think about half of it. And I'm excited to give it all my, uh, everything I can this year. Uh, and I'm glad to be doing it again with you, Sammy. Yeah, absolutely. This has been something, I mean, I've, I had pledged to keep the podcast going while you were away. I completely fell apart on that pledge because, um, oh, I no, decided no, to you didn't. Yeah, no, the, the two part issue was great. I did, I did, <laughs> I did a two part, uh, deep dive on new scope, but, um, the thing is, it's just not fun doing it if it's just me. So I'm glad you're back and I'm glad uh, we can you charm you. me. Thank you. <laughs> It's glad to be back. Now, just our little housekeeping things, mm-hmm. which is, as always, um, we are, you know, I mean, we pretty much do this as a labor of love, but if you support our Patreon, that helps us just pay for some basic costs and stuff. So, uh, yeah, that would be much appreciated. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y. 
why. And uh, we'll this week we're just gonna gonna do a bit of a catch up, warm everyone back into it. Yeah, and we'll be back next week with uh, with a fully featured uh, interview. That's right. Also, keep in mind it is the start of the new year, relatively speaking. I mean, we're in February now, but everyone's still kind of winding things up. But it's News Corp has not slowed down. They have been busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, and now on to our first uh, News Corp story, News of the Week. Um, And this is a bit of a doozy. This is a quote. News Corp Australia and Google have joined forces to establish a groundbreaking digital news training initiative, which will develop and enhance the online skills of journalists across the country. An article, or should I say really a press release published in The Australian said, there's this new plan to put 250 reporters and editors each year for three years through a program that teaches them digital skills like storytelling techniques and data journalism. The panel of experts who will be overseeing the course include uh, Joe Hildebrand, uh, Hedley Thomas, mm-hmm. who is the National Chief Correspondent, who also did the Teacher's Pet podcast, Eliza Barr, and uh, a frequent, um, um, I guess, mentionee of this podcast, Sherry Markson, who actually quite famously uh, in her work as the Australian once went undercover and attended a university lecture and reported on it to see how they were talking about News Corp. And now she's bringing it full circle by uh, being, you know, leading the university course of her own. It all sounds pretty anodyne, right? Like, you know, oh, cool, a collaboration, university stuff. Well, Am- yeah. Amanda Mead from The Guardian reported that there was a rather negative reception uh, writing academics at University of Melbourne say they were not consulted. And this move is a reflection of the antagonism that News Corp has for university journalism. She quoted the director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, Andrew Dodd, saying that he first heard of this move, of this you know big establishment, when he read the press release. He said, um, our concern is the training that is happening through the business school and that News Corp is seeking to work with the business school so as to avoid the kind of questioning culture of liberal arts and humanities faculties. It's a reflection really of the antagonism that News Corp has had for university journalism program over many years. Sammy, this one hits rather close to home for you, doesn't it? It does indeed. Um, so full disclosure is I am a university lecturer at the University of Melbourne at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not a full-time job. It's something I do um, uh, on a contractual basis, so contract to contract. And so I'm not a full-time staff member. Therefore, I'm not privy to a lot of the university goings on. I go in, I teach my classes, I meet up with some of my other colleagues and I leave. But the point being, the University of Melbourne does have a journalism department that is highly respected. It is world-renowned. It's called the Center for Advancing Journalism, and it's already doing the job of teaching journalism. So the idea that all of a sudden a whole new section of the university is now doing the exact same thing, but under the aegis of the business school is a very confusing thing indeed. And uh, and some of the quotes that have come out uh, since the announcement, including Andrew Dodd, uh, who is my boss. And again, I speak, I do not speak at all as a representative of the university. I am not speaking as a representative of the Center for Advancing Journalism. Uh, I'm speaking purely as Sammy Shah, curmudgeon and troublemaker. Um, so I want to make that very, very clear as well. Um, but yeah, some of the quotes that have come out have been fairly interesting because um, as one of the things that was said by News Corp is that uh, 
There's no doubt that at news over time, there has been tension or skepticism about some of the journalism schools. And I must say, extraordinary skepticism in the journalism schools about news corporation, which I feel is a bit of an unfair characterization. I mean, I teach, you know, a few courses. I have taught a few courses now in the last two years there at the university. And um, the news corp outlets are given the exact same treatment as any other. Um, Their mistakes are brought up, as are their victories. Many of our students have gone on to become journalists at news corp right after graduation. So it's a very strange thing that they've done here. And I think it's largely because they want a level of control. My theory is that the university otherwise wouldn't have allowed with the Center of Advancing Journalism. Uh, it kind of speaks a little bit to the corporatization of Australian universities as well, I think. Yeah, it, it does draw in a lot of things. I mean, the thing that I think is one of the big points we've kind of harped on about that I don't think other places cover as much is the role, is the relationship between News Corp and mm-hmm. Google and and seeing them also have a role in shaping uh, journalism courses or, or I guess like... Um, yeah, journalism courses, again, is another example of like journalism these days increasingly has to fit into, you know, the confines of something like what performs well on a Google search to do well. And and that's a big part of the, the pitch of this um, that, you know, they're saying, you know, like the kind of subtext is we're not going to teach your airy fairy, you know, mm-hmm. journalism stuff. We're teaching you concrete skills that will actually allow you to commercially apply your work. Can I play devil's advocate here and say, you know, there, there, every now and again, this happens on Twitter where journalists en masse for some reason decide that they need to tell everyone that either they didn't study journalism at uni or the ones that did, they didn't learn anything. <laughs> yes. There is, There's a pride there, there is endurance. a reputation, yes. <laughs> at least amongst, I, that, that's true, that's true, and we'll get into it. But like, there is, you know, it's a bit of a meme that like, journalism schools at least in the past you know these are often like when you're talking professional journalists they're often talking people who are many many years out of universities and i know that university teaching has come a long way you know even in in a decade but like what do you think about this you know you're someone who teaches now have you seen in universities a real desire to try and teach you know more applicable skills or do you think that when people brag about saying well i didn't learn anything that i use in my degree are they missing the point that like they did learn things or ideas and concepts that may not you know be the same as you know busting out a a a super quick seo headline Mm -hmm. but have like grounded their practice yeah i mean look part of it is um and this is an important thing to point out, is that a professionalization of journalism has been an ongoing discussion in the journalism field for a very long time. You know, should there be a certification required for journalists? You know, should a journalist, you know, what skills should a journalist know before even walking into the job on their first day? Is a degree requirement? Should we have a union? Should we be required to get a, a certification as journalists before we get to be journalists? These are things that have been in the journalism discussion for a very long time. But at the same time, I know I teach at the University of Melbourne at the Center for Advancing Journalism. The whole airy-fairy kind of, you know, the philosophical approach to journalism thing, a lot of that has been gutted from the courses over the years because people realize it's not practical, it's not useful. You know, one of the things, for example, that's mentioned over here is that, um, uh, and this is said by Campbell Reed, by the way. Campbell Reed is the Murdoch, uh, you know, Murdoch's corporate affairs executive, who's also the head of the Digital News Academy, which is what the organization has been called at the University of Melbourne. And he said that um, basically the business school was chosen because it's unashamedly about the business of journalism and they wanted to design a curriculum from the ground up. That stuff that we teach, one of the courses that I teach, 
focuses on SEO, search engine optimization, how to write headlines that work best within, you know, search engines, how to write headlines that work best for social media, how to tailor your content to work best in multiple medias and everything like that. And then also how to be a journalist and earn a living being a journalist in the modern age. This is not a theoretical PhD in journalism that has got no places in reality. This is very much training the new journalists of tomorrow to go out there and do their jobs. And many of them do get jobs and do their jobs well. So it's, it, this seems like a, a, a institution that wasn't needed, wasn't required, and exists largely to create a whole new fleet of journalists and News Corp personally can stamp on, or get their stamp on rather, than all the other journalists, uh, you know, student, journalism students in Australia. It's, um, it's a very cynical move, in my opinion. And the University of Melbourne kind of signing up to do it so eagerly and kind of cutting Centre for Advancing Journalism out of the entire equation is also a... a you know, growing evidence of the of the uh, mistreatment of academics, the completely disregard academics given are you know are given in universities today, and how much of the university is just a private business earning profit for shareholders. I'll just say this, by the way, allegedly. Let me just throw in allegedly quickly before I get fired, before my <laughs> yeah. next contract isn't renewed, as I shit on my bosses. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned the idea of of um some kind of. Sat- certificate or like certification or um you know having Mm -hmm. to join some kind of board for being a journalist is that something that you think that we should do i i'm very conflicted i know that it's not how journalism has worked um for ever basically forever Uh, journalism has been a field where you know i that's how i got to be a journalist in that i was an english major i was working in advertising i hated my job and i hated my life and i and i got joined a news company and i got trained by this amazing staff and team and that's how i became a journalist i never had to get a certification i never had to do an apprenticeship um but a part of me does think some of the problems inherent in journalism today including the lack of trust that the general public has but also things like breaches in journalistic ethics there's no way of supervising them you know we've got for example a body in australia that in theory is supposed to oversee journalistic breaches but really can't really hand down many very much in terms of effective punishment is very much a paper tiger in terms of its effectiveness um i always wonder maybe journalism might be improved with some level of regulation um beyond just what journalists impose on themselves because in the end i never trust people who police themselves because they're always going to be lenient so um is it an industry that needs it i would argue yes but i'm also you know very not naive i'm very aware of the pitfalls that path might cause as well i don't know if it's a solution to all our problems i think it might be a solution to some of them though yeah i I think it's interesting i think it's almost a bit of a moot point now because the cat is out of the Mm. bag with citizen journalists and, and social media you know anyone can be a journalist now so i think it's almost a bit too late but anyway hey on to our next story um news corp continues to post strong financials in fact recording its best ever quarter since it spun off their entertainment assets in 2013 so robert thompson who's an australian but he's the chief executive of news corp internationally said the company's businesses were thriving particularly uh at the digital real estate services dow jones and book publishing segments also notably the section that publishes the oz picked up citing a return in advertising revenue which nosedived during the pandemic as well as increased uh, uh, subs and also circulation. But an interesting wrinkle was that while Foxtel gained subscribers up to 3.9 million, its revenue fell 31%. Uh, 
Uh, nines, Zoe Samuels writes, the results, which News Corp attributed to a fall in residential broadcast revenue, the closure of pubs and clubs, and popularity of sports events such as the Ashes on free-to-air television, come as senior executives at the media conglomerate mull whether a public listing, as we've mentioned before, is the best step forward for the business. Sammy, you'd have to think, you know, amid all this, when with with Foxtel, mm-hmm. with the rise of streaming, they'd be trying to get Foxtel off the book sooner rather than later before things get worse, right? Well, I don't know for the get... I think that... Look, I think part of the, uh, the, the, the criticism, or not the criticism, the analysis of why Foxtel fell is accurate. You know, because of lockdowns, um, you did see a fall in sports, you know, events. You did see a fall in pub, you know, events and things like that, where, you know, you go down the pub, in the pub, everyone watches the footy game, etc. That seemed to be happening a lot less. Lockdowns are largely over, you know, God forbid there's another variant which will suddenly kill all of us. But overall, it does seem as the lockdowns are over. I think there's a very good chance that that drop in revenue was temporary and was linked to that and we'll see a rise again. Will it return back to the numbers Foxel enjoyed before? Not at all. I think streaming has made that clear for all the channels. But if News Corp is good at anything, it's been surviving all technological changes every single time they've come around. I mean, that's one of the things I learned while doing that deep dive into News Corp is how adept they are (laughs) at adapting to the times, or rather at least how adept Rupert Murdoch has been at adapting to the times, taking the risks and, and, you know, taking the body blows, but coming out on top regardless. So I, I think in this case, Foxtel itself will see less of subscription than it has in the past, but more than it has in the recent past. Um, and once sports returns and pub gigs returns and, you know, the people start traveling more and they're in the, the airport lounges and all of those things, all those places where Foxtel is a mandatory subscription and the eyeballs count, you might see a return to popularity to some degree. I don't know. I'm, I, I have a fair bit of faith in their ability to make money when no one else does. Yes, I agree. They they have been very good at, at transforming. The digital transformation is going mm-hmm. impressively well, as we just mentioned. But I, I get the sense that they really might have missed the peak. Like, you know, if they just done, oh, if really? I think they'd done it just a little bit earlier during the pandemic, maybe before the worst effects of it hit, because obviously it takes a while for these financials to mm-hmm. come out. Like, I don't think things are going to get any better for them. And, you know, particularly people who've cancelled and stuff, I really just want to go to to streaming services. And, yep, things will return, no doubt. But I, I think the I think the best days of Foxtel are behind them. See, have you so have you ever had a Foxtel subscription? No, I haven't. Uh, and I, I've never... Neither have I've I. I've never really, like, needed one. And, and I mean, mm. I was... I'll be... I think the statute of limitations will allow me to say that I pirated a lot of stuff when I was younger. So I'm probably outside of the, mm. the age bracket then. And now when they're streaming services... There's nothing on those, um, you know, on, on Foxtel that I can't get elsewhere. The interesting thing that I've I, right. that I've started to do, or I'm, I'm kind of starting to do, is I, I read this article and, uh, that suggested saying like, why don't you just cancel your subscription services all the time and pick them up whenever there's something that's relevant? Because there's no benefit to be on a subscription service if you don't actually use it and there's no benefit to stay on there for like a month like it's not like you know a membership mm-hmm, at the mcg mm-hmm. where you you know you wait for years and then you finally get there you gotta keep it but right. you can just pick it up whenever and you're not losing anything but you're, you're potentially gaining money so i think that that is going to start to also hit them as well and maybe that's maybe that's where foxtel also kind of is a bit more steady because you get it installed you pay an installation fee you have a set contract maybe they'll still 
like that as part of their business because it it provides some consistency um, as consumers apparently are increasingly doing what I was just talking about. Well, I think, you know, one of the stories which we'll get into as well, this will come back a little bit is, you know, print media, for example, and print newspapers. I think think a subscription to Foxtel is very similar to a subscription to a print newspaper in that there is a physical element involved as opposed to just subscribing to a streaming service. I have Binge. I think I probably use Binge and watch Binge more than I do almost any of the other streaming services I have subscriptions to because it's got good HBO content. Um, But I've never seen a single, you know, Foxtel-specific TV show. I think that's safe. I'm, I'm actually saying with you, I think I think Binge is, is probably... It, I mean, the interface is actually quite bad and, and buggy, but the content is good. Mm. Um, since you mentioned it, yes. why don't we jump onto that? So this didn't get much yes. attention, but News Corp papers have actually jumped in price in January. They've increased by up to 30 cents to $2.50 a day. So Crikey's Christopher Warren writes that he thinks it's an effort to push readers onto digital subscriptions. He says, it's trading on the increasing elasticity of the cover price of the print product, which tells us that higher prices reduce sales. It's all but shouting at you, don't pick up the paper, you idiot. There's far better value in a digital subscription. He goes on to say that for the company, it makes sense to try and push their readers onto subscriptions, digital sp- mm-hmm. uh, subscriptions specifically, because then you are, you know, you're kind of locked in. And it's not like, well, I buy the Australian when I see it, and and some days I see it, and some days I don't. Trying to get everyone to, you know, be on that subscription, you know, giving them that subscription money is that businesses seem to love. Sammy, do you think it's that simple? Do you think that they're, they're right. trying to price out their own customers to to send them towards their digital stuff, or is it just potentially um, look- like, is it just potentially the reality that like printing costs more, and as as people move away from physical papers there's a less of economies to scale so it, it starts to cost even more i think that i think the latter is more likely the reason i think also one of the reasons is because the subscription model of the print newspaper you know if, if you if you for example are increasing it at, by 30 cents per day you're also going to be increasing the overall subscription package right for the for the australian the annual subscription six month subscription etc and the places that have these subscriptions don't tend to be individuals as much anymore as they are institutions organized organizations, airlines, mm. offices, businesses, you know, um, other news channels, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, these are the places where the print subscription to the print newspaper is still an ongoing thing and will remain an ongoing thing forever. So I think News Corp can go, look, most of our actual readers, our, our, our human individual readers are moving to digital or have moved to digital. We can increase the price. We're not going to lose them. They'll just continue moving on to digital. But increasing the price does help them offset the price increases that they're facing from the publishers, sorry, from the printer's end uh, and from the printing end by you know forcing the people who are locked into subscriptions and are never going to cancel them to pick up that price increase. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. And, and I think just generally trying to get people to subscribe. I remember, I think in uni, I got, they used to offer these cheap subscriptions for students where it was like a total loss leader. But the idea was to, to get you hooked on the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, I think I had a subscription to something ridiculous like the AFR, which as an 18 year old, who was just not that interested in it, it was a complete waste. But, uh, and, but it was like a dollar a week and I was like, yeah, cool, no worries. And just like the papers were just like absolutely, uh, they were just like, there'd be heaps and they'd pile up. But you just be, you never kind of get around to actually mm-hmm. like, cancel it. So I just had this like constant stream of like those plastic covered newspapers like in my bin 
but I never got really around to 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 getting rid of it until I think I actually just like <laughs> aged out of the price. So maybe that's what they're going for. They're hoping, right? Um, yeah, they're they're hoping just to to have people forget about them or be too lazy to actually actually cancel them. All right. Um, now this was another thing that actually came out of uh of the um, announcements to to Wall Street and the ASX, which was that News Corp has been the victim of a multi-year hacking allegedly for China. So this was discovered in January. The hack affected employees, including journalists in the US and the UK at publications such as the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. News Corp Australia was actually not affected. Apparently, this is one in a series of hacks of Western media companies by Chinese hackers going back a decade. Now, Sammy, I don't know if this is just me being like the classic like mm-hmm. self-centered journalist, but doesn't the industry already have enough problems? Do we really need to be the part? I mean, the, do we really need to be the target of state-sponsored cyber attacks too? <laughs> the weird thing for me here isn't even the added stress of being hacked now. Because look, let's be honest, we all assume, if not China, then the NSA or ASIO or someone's hacking everything <laughs> that we do all the yeah, time. Anyway, yeah, I mean, they, you know, I, it's what makes me feel less lonely knowing that somewhere <laughs> out there, there's a government employee watching me through my computer. They're probably listening right but, now, sir. Hi, hi to my assigned yeah. agent. I hope you're enjoying it. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, happy new year. You know, I hope you're doing well. I hope your family's a lovely <laughs> family. Um, the thing that's insulting is that they didn't hack News Corp Australia mm. because basically China was like, we don't even need to hack mm. them. We already got Australia covered. <laughs> like they, they, that is insulting to News Corp Australia and to Australia overall. As an Australian citizen, I am personally offended. I, I feel like China owes us an apology and I want China to hack us now just to make up for this oversight. So that's my first thing that I'm going to say. The other thing I'm going to say is, look, this is, I mean, you know, we we hear about the stories about China and Russia hacking us, but obviously we never hear about the stories about us hacking China and Russian Mm, newspapers as well. Yeah. this is an age-old thing. Do you really think that the intelligence agencies of the our part of the world, of, of our allies and us, aren't doing the same thing to our enemies? Because that would be stupid and inefficient of us. And, and, and in fact, quite irresponsible of us to not be doing that as well. So I just assume that if China's hacking us, we're hacking them. We hear about it because we have a more of a free press. China might not you know, announce it in their press because it makes them look bad. Same thing with Russia. Although Russia has in the past announced this from time to time about US hacking of you know, Russian government um, and Russian uh, press uh, computers as well. Um, you can see some of the story in the Russian press. But yeah, I, I don't think it's as shocking as we might want it to be. It's a great news story, but it's not a it's not a new news story. I like how you just casually dropped in there the fact that you seemingly consume Russian press. Wow, Sammy, <laughs> no big deal. No, I tell you why. I was just reading why. in the because, Moscow Times because. Um, <laughs> Whenever I do, I do like, you know, my news weekly podcast, which is the new satire podcast. And, and, you know, over the years, I've been doing new satire basically since 2006, 2007 in Pakistan. And I always tried to do a new satire that wasn't centered around the country I was in, but was more global. And the temptation always is I look at the BBC, I look at the New York Times, I look at, you know, whatever's in Australia, and that's it. So I try to branch out, I'll try to look at what's happening in Russian press, what's happening in Indian press, what's happening in some of the China Morning Post, what's happening in Hong Hong Kong, like in other newspapers and magazines and things in other countries. And you find that it gives you a really interesting perspective on things like the Ukraine crisis right now. I've been watching a lot of Russian 
you know, state propaganda news media to see how they're spinning it for their people. So I find it interesting. I also find it informs my comedy a lot better when it's more researched and well-rounded. No one cares. None of my listeners have ever noticed <laughs> the amount of research I'm putting into this goddamn thing, but that's who I am. I care. And I also <laughs> think that there may be a potential for News Corp to expand into Russia. There's like hundreds of millions of people there, and I don't think they have a publication there. Although I think you might have to, uh, there's probably a little bit of paperwork to, to work out with Putin, but I'm sure they could make that work. Uh, finally, on to... I'm sure. Look, if Trump could make it work, anyone can. <laughs> finally, on our last uh, piece of news, this is a nice little a little uh, nugget of News Corp-related gossip. Lachlan Murdoch has mm. reportedly hired Sue Chrisenthal, SC, which raised eyebrows because she represented Jeffrey Rush in their suit against News Corp, which cost them more than $5 million in damages and costs. So this is from Stephen Brook and Samantha Hutchinson in In Nine Papers. They write, she turned heads at Lachlan and wife Sarah's A-list party in December when she turned up with her husband, barrister Kieran Smark. At the time, her invitation seemed like a remarkable gesture of graciousness on Murdoch's behalf. Um, but she has been, in fact, working for them, and there was some speculation whether it had something to do with a uh, forthcoming uh, unauthorized biography of mm-hmm. um, of Lock and Murdoch, or, or perhaps for just dealing with some other defamation interests. Uh, Sammy, I'm would be really curious to, to know what you think about what this actually says about elites, the people at the top, that you know, someone who had who had clearly cost uh, the company. A non-insignificant amount of company uh, of money. I, I know that they're obviously a very, very big and wealthy company, but you know it's high mm-hmm. profile, and she handed them a defeat. What do you think it says that they're willing to, uh, uh, you know, I guess, you know, I should say that Sue actually, I believe, because of the um, first cab off the rank rule as a barrister, kind of has to take this. But what do you think that it's, it, it says about Murdoch that he's like, this person beat us. I want to get them on side. I think it comes down to that old. It's not personal. It's business thing. Right. Mm. In the end, a lot of these things are just seen as business transactions. And, you know, if, if someone beats you, that's a person you want in your team because that means they're really, really good. There's also a few other things like Sue Chrisenthal is a she's a celebrity defamation lawyer in Australia. She's handled some big cases. She, I think she represented Sarah Hansen Young against um, David Lionhelm. Or- Thank you, David Lionhelm. Yes. Um she handled Sarah Hansen Young's case. That. She was also very famously and quite controversially involved with the Christian Porter case, where she was supposed to represent mm. Christian Porter. However, George Weyer, um filed a, a suit against her and said that she, a you know, federal court ruling decided that Sue Chrysantha should not be representing Christian Porter. They ended up having to pay something like $430,000 because of a conflict of interest issue. And then when you dig a little deeper, you find that News Corp was denied documents from the case about Christian Porter's star barrister. Sue Chrysantha, which is a headline from just a few months ago. So, you know, getting Sue Chrysantha on the books is um, gives you access to a lot of uh, a lot of wider Australian, you know, celebrity gossip. And by celebrity, I don't mean superstars like actors. I mean, celebrity like Christian Porter, like um, Sarah Hansen Young and all these people. Obviously, she's a top notch lawyer, so she's never going to breach confidentiality. But uh, just think of the quality of uh, representation you have if, for example, Theoretically, Lachlan Murdoch decides to take the publisher or the author um, of the unofficial, you know, um, 
biography about him to court and he can say this celebrity defamation lawyer is my representative in this case it's going to be quite a boost yeah as a you know the the family vibe which which you know is permeates through the company is that they like winners mm. and and they're happy when they can kind of also you know use their resources to kind of bend other people to their will now this wasn't like a fully bending to the will but i'm kind of thinking about how news corp has waged a war against facebook and google for a decade and now they're doing these collaborations i mean paid tens of millions of dollars for them and they're mm-hmm. happy to do that you know there's no bad blood when it comes to either you know getting what you want yeah, absolutely. It, it honestly just comes back to the thing. It's never personal. It's always business. And if it is always business, then your enemies today can be your business partners tomorrow. I think um, that's kind of nice. <laughs> the question I've always had is, yeah, it's, it's almost a sweet thing, you know, when you think about it that way. But um, the question I've always had is, is Lachlan Murdoch, which sibling from succession is he? Is he Roman? Uh, oh, God, I actually... I think he, 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 uh, he I, I think actually I've read some stuff on this and essentially the answer is the characters were written with inspirations from obviously mm-hmm. different siblings, but also different families to the extent that it, you, you can't really, uh, it, it wouldn't make sense to kind of say this character was inspired by this character. So, uh, but, but like, yes, right. you know, there, there is a lot of that as well. And, you know, when we were talking about the, like, you know, him coming doing his time in Australia, that's like a bit like Roman having to do the like rocket launch stuff. But of course he's the child who looks like yeah. the best position to like win the empire. So there's a bit of all of them in there. <laughs> okay. So we usually do a good news corp, bad news corp. I've only got around to doing a bad news corp of the week, but it is a fascinating one. And with the election, not too far off, this is really it feels like a pretends for what's to come. There was an exclusive by Shari Markson, which was on the front of The Australian this week that says, Anthony Albanese's battle cry in war on family wealth. Now, to me, that sounds like something that is kind of contemporaneous that Anthony Albanese has, you know, he's declared that all billionaires should be beheaded or something. And mm-hmm. the lead, the first line is that Anthony Albanese sharply criticized capitalism and family wealth as causes of societal injustice while suggesting incomes above $100,000 a year were not entirely deserved. Uh, Controversial, maybe? I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. some people listening Mm -hmm. who agree with that. The next sentence kind of puts it all in context. The opposition made the previously unreported remarks while arguing for an inheritance tax when he was the Assistant General Secretary of New South Wales Labor in 1991. So this comment, which was literally yes. made 31 years ago, was rolled out uh, and and to be honest, like, you know, they, they did qualify the fact that this was 30 years ago, but if you were someone who just saw the headline or even who just read the first line, you'd be like, wow, I can't believe Albo did this. I thought he was trying to do a small target election stuff. It was like clearly done in a way that was just like, you know, very biased against Anthony Albanese, I think. It was supposed to give the perception that he'd been saying it now. Yes. And look, you know, I think it's just like, is this what we're going to see from News Corp throughout the election? Uh, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, there's two things here. The first is that I suppose this is the kind of quality, uh, uh, 
you know, education in journalism that Sherry Markson will be delivering at the new, um, you know, journalism school at the University of Melbourne is uh, if you can't find anything recent, then go all the way back to 1991 to make your opponent look bad. The <laughs> other thing I found interesting and unfair to Anthony Albanese, and I'm no fan of Anthony Albanese at all. I'm quite on the public record of uh, criticizing him quite often, um, is they published a photograph of Anthony Albanese in 1994, uh, mm. in this article which really is he looks like he's cosplaying as a uh, young kevin rudd like it is uh, not a flattering photograph at all there's a much <laughs> younger one so if you scroll down as a young activist where he looks yeah. kind of cool he looks kind of oh, you know punk rock that, that, bit, that's little... the famous hot elbow photo Yes, the the, the uh, so there is definitely a hot elbow phase, and then he really transitioned out of that phase quickly into into you know the nineteen ninety four elbow. Who who? Oh yeah. You know, I'll say this: he has aged well <laughs> compared to that <laughs> photograph, and I think therein lies the true drama in this article: is that was uncalled for, Sherry. Yeah, they did him no favors. I mean, he was he was in Parliament no. by twenty five, if I recall correctly. Like he was in Parliament very, very young. He really is a career politician. Even just like mm. you know, one of the thing which is that you know, like I said, the lead that first line says suggesting incomes over a hundred thousand dollars a year were not entirely deserved doesn't say until oh, like another maybe ten or eleven paragraphs. Uh, that it says he insisted people earning incomes of more than $100,000 and then in brackets, more than $200,000 today. Because of course, yeah. like inflation has <laughs> happened and that is like so long ago. It Like, it, I mean, look, I, I mean, I, I my guess is if I had to figure out where this came from, I think it's probably likely that um, some of the government's, uh, you know, dirt unit, as they call it, the, the staff mm-hmm. who they've got, you know, trawling through archives, trying to find things that are... Um, going to be you know trip up their political opponents in the election they probably you know uh dug this up rather than sherry personally going through you know old um uh archives and, and finding transcripts of of state uh, labor uh, conventions but that being said like you know i think we're going to see so much of this to come if this is like i mean maybe they've got more i mean i'm sure they'll probably have more to drop but as far as things go i th- i thought this was pretty tame yeah Absolutely. And I think um, overall, it, it just shows that the dirt unit at least is taking time away from throwing dirt at Scott Morrison, their own prime minister, <laughs> and <laughs> focusing and remembering that their opposition currently is still Anthony Albanese. You know, So that's at least heartening to see. So that's it for our first return episode of 2022. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already subscribed, uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, right next to Joe Rogan's podcast, or just about everywhere or anywhere. <laughs> or join our podcast group on Facebook at Medocracy Podcast, where we post up all the Medocracy, all the Medocracy-related news, corporate-related news that we can find, and we have discussions going around some of those. Thanks, as always, to Kevin McLeod for the theme music and ABC for the recordings from the archives and Ruby Innes for our artwork. Uh, and of course, thanks to you and congratulations once again. Thank you, Sammy. I'm excited for a big year. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. 